Uh, so I was uh, also a, a Montana Bible College student about 30 years ago, 25 years ago, I guess, back uh, before it was here when it was downtown. I have a lot of uh, fond memories of, of being here. So um, it's always an honor uh, for me. Is that, uh, I want to see if that can go up like there. Sweet, thanks. Yeah, so it's always an honor to be invited back, and I have a, um, I don't know, just a special place in my heart for Montana Bible College. Uh, what I want to do this morning is um, I want to take a look with you at um, the story of Jonah. You're, of course, very familiar with this story. I want to look at it from what you might call a, a ministry uh, perspective. And of course, you're, you're familiar with the story. You remember? You remember the story? God calls uh, Jonah to go preach to his enemies. Jonah does not want to do this. He goes the other direction. He gets on board a ship. Uh, the storm comes. The sailors overthrow him. He gets eaten by a fish, and he's humbled at this point, and he prays to God. God's the God of second chances, right? And uh, the fish vomits Jonah up onto dry land. And this time he goes and he obeys God and he preaches to the Ninevites. And what happens? There's this um, phenomenal great awakening, you might call it, in the land of Nineveh, like almost beyond our imagination. And you would think, you would think that the story would end there. That's chapter three, right? You would think maybe there's one more verse at the very end of chapter 3, and it reads like this. It might read, And Jonah went home rejoicing, right? And Jonah went home rejoicing. That's what you would expect, but instead that's not what we find. That's not what we find at all. Instead, what happens? Let me read you just the first couple verses of chapter 4 of Jonah. I'm going to read the first three verses. And we'll look at the chapter in its entirety. But let me just start with the first three if you want to turn there, you can just listen. Verse 1. So God has context. God has mercy on Nineveh, right? He relents. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. May God bless the reading and the heeding of his word uh, this morning. And so instead of having a Jonah who's rejoicing because there's been a great awakening. How do we find Jonah? Where's Jonah at? Well, Jonah is at his breaking point. Jonah's emotions are severely raw. Uh, you might say that he is um, clinically depressed and certainly suicidal, right? He wants to die. And he's harboring uh, bitter attitudes, hateful, vengeful, attitudes in his heart toward his enemies. So here's what I want to do. I, I want to pose a question to you. Um, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a professional counselor, right? I don't know if any of you want to be a professional Christian counselor, maybe down the road, work for a church or a counseling center or something like that. But let's say you are. Just humor me for today, okay? So you are a professional counselor. Um, 
You're, this counselee walks in the door and he explains to you that his name is Jonah, okay? And you gotta work with this guy. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering, what are you gonna say to him? How are you gonna, how are you gonna instill some sort of hope in this guy? How are you gonna be an instrument of change in his life? What kinds of questions would you ask Jonah? What would you say? What would a counseling session with Jonah look like? And the, way I, the reason I want to ask this question this morning is because the fact is, you might not be a professional counselor, right? But you're all counselors. You are all constantly giving counsel. You're giving counsel to the people around you all the time in the way you encourage them, the wisdom you want to give them, the advice that you give. But more than that, you're also counseling yourself all the time. You're all counselors. You're telling yourself constantly, what is the best way? What is reality? What should I do right now? And I think by looking at this story from that perspective, it's going to help us to be better counselors. Okay? And so what do you do with Jonah? What I want to propose is you, you'd want to do three things. And I think this will transfer into all of life. But number one, you're going to want to try to just understand Jonah. Uh, number two, you're going to want to, what I'm going to call, give Jonah a new story. And then number three, you're going to want to point him to Jesus. Okay? Understand him, give him a new story, point him to Jesus. Okay? So what does that actually look like? Let's, let's jump in. So first, what does it look like to understand Jonah? And uh, do you all take counseling classes here? Okay, so how many of you have taken a counseling class? Very good, very good. So you know this, right? I'm preaching to the choir that when you're counseling someone, whether formally or informally, it's super important to listen to them, right? To ask good questions, to get in their shoes, um, understand where they're coming from, what their background is, because why? Why is that so important? Like, if you didn't do that, what would happen? Uh, there's a Christian counselor by the name of Paul Tripp, and he says that, and actually he's been here, I think, at Grace Bible before. Um, uh, he's one of my favorites. But he says, if you don't take the time to ask good questions and to listen and understand the person who's sitting in front of you, something very dangerous could happen. You could start counseling a person who doesn't even exist, right? Because you're just assuming things about them. You don't even know them. You start speaking into their life, and that person's not even there, the person you're speaking to. Does that make sense? Because you don't know them. And so you have to listen. What is Jonah saying? Why? Why is he in such a dark place? Do you know? Let me read again verses 1 and 2. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, This is why I ran from you when you told me to go to Nineveh. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, who relents from sending calamity. Why is he in such a dark place? Well, we kind of we laugh at it, right? I've heard a million sermons on Jonah, and it, you know, whenever you read the passage and this verse is read, everybody kind of chuckles because Jonah is getting mad at what? At God's mercy, that he's compassionate. The very heart of, really, um, God's character. He reveals this very sentence to Moses in Exodus chapter 33 and 34 when Moses says, Show me your glory, God, and God quotes this at him. And this is what encourages Moses. And now this is the very thing that sends Jonah into a depression, right? So it's kind of comical. This is a phrase that kind of reverberates throughout the Old Testament. 
But you can't do that. You don't want to laugh at Jonah when he's sitting there in front of you sharing his heart. You want to, you want to get inside his world. You want to feel his darkness, as it were. You want to know his fears. Um, you guys all remember the book 1984, right? George, How many of you read the book 1984? Do you remember the room, the dreaded room? I think it was room 101. Do you remember what was behind the door of room 101? It was your worst fear, right? For one of the characters in the story, it was rats, right? But for you, it would be something maybe different than rats. What would be behind your door? Is the thing in life that you are most afraid of, that you most don't want to happen, okay? And for Jonah, what's, what's behind door 101 for Jonah? Behind door 101 for Jonah is a world in which there is no justice. That's what he's most afraid of. That's what he most hates. He would hate to live in a world where people like Hitler don't get what they deserve. They just get away with it. And Jonah wants a God of justice. He doesn't want to live in a world where God just winks at sin, sweeps it under the rug, and says, Oh, that's okay, Ninevites. I forgive you. It's okay that you slaughtered nations and raped women and sliced apart infants things that they did, right? Burned people alive, put their heads on stakes. That's okay. I forgive you. He doesn't want a world like that. He wants to know, where's the justice in that? You do the crime, you do the time, right? That's what, what Jonah wants. And he wants to live in a world where there's justice. And I think you do too. I don't know if you would want to actually live in a world where there is no justice. How many people would want to live in a world like that? So you get, you get in his shoes, you sit in his chair, you feel his darkness, you understand his pain, and that's where he's coming from, right? That's what he's afraid of. And so the next thing, kind of you want to take another step with Jonah and think, okay, now that I, I kind of at least sort of get where he's coming from, I want to help him to, to have a new story, you might call it that, to reinterpret his world. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, maybe think of it this way. Um, several years ago, um, my, two of my kids, I think they were in grade school at the time, and my wife and I, we went on Sourdough Trail, the one here in town between Goldenstein and Keggy. It's one of my favorite trails in town. I just love jogging and walking on that trail. So we decided, I think it was a Saturday evening in the fall, and we decided, let's go for a, a bike ride, run. And my wife and I were running. The kids were on bikes. And I was kind of running ahead on the trail. And I hear this, you know, rustling in the bushes. There's some places where it can get pretty thick. And I, I stopped, and I looked at the rustling. And I get down on my hands and knees like, what is that in there? And I'm not kidding. Four feet away from me is a decent-sized black bear, okay? We're just looking at each other face to face like this. And then all of a sudden, what happens? He just explodes, <laughs> crashing through the brush. And I don't, at that moment, you're not thinking, okay, what am I supposed to, am I supposed to stop, drop, and roll? Am I, no, that's fire. Am I supposed to play dead? No, that's grizzly bears, black bear. What, what am I supposed to do? I didn't even think, I just ran. I just started running, which you're not supposed to do with bears, right? And so I start running and I heard this crashing and I get to my kids who are on their bikes, right? And I, 
they're coming this way and I'm running and I say, go, go, turn, turn, turn. I pass them up, right? And then I get to my wife. And I get to my wife, I'm like, turn around, there's a bear, run. I pass her and I get them, and I get them out to safety, right? I heroically lead the way. And so we get out to the field. We're all like, Brie, I'm like, come on. And they get there and, I, and I'm really proud of myself because I was a leader, right? And so that's my my interpretation of what happened, right? My kids though, and they love telling this story. Whenever we have company over, they always want to tell about the time when dad saw a bear and he got so scared that he ran right past all the kids and his wife and left them in the dust to be eaten alive, right? <laughs> so here we have, we have two very different versions of the same event that actually happened, right? And in one of the versions, I'm a hero, right? I get to go home proud of myself, good job. You know, what can I say except you're welcome, right? <laughs> but in the, other, in the other version, I'm a coward, right? And I failed as a, as a father and as a husband. And so which one am I gonna pick, right? The fact is we usually pick the version of the story that best suits us, the one that we like the best. And the fact is, that's not just me, right? The fact is you all do that with your life. You have constructed a narrative, a story about your life. You have an interpretation that somebody gave you or that you've just come up with yourself and you're living life out of that narrative. Everybody does it and it's not necessarily even true, but we usually pick the narrative, the version of the story that suits us, the one that we like the best. And listen, if change is ever going to happen in your life, if change is ever going to happen in the people that you want to minister to, they have to have God's version of the story. They can't have some make-believe story that they just like but isn't true. And so what we see in chapter 4 of Jonah is God working with Jonah and his interpretation of his story, and God's giving Jonah a new story. He's giving him a gospel story. And specifically, we find out that God does this in three different ways. Uh, number one, he gives Jonah a plant. Okay? Number two, a, a worm. And then number three, a question. Okay? And let's just, I want to look just briefly at each of these to show you how God is working with Noah with each of these images or questions to shape his story, to reshape his story. So first, what does God do? He gives him a plant in verse 6. The Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. Ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. I love that line. So this is a mini parable. It's a play on words. God eases Jonah's discomfort. That's the phrase from verse 6. Jonah has what? Discomfort. And if you read the commentaries, they'll all tell you, or many will tell you, that at least interact with the Hebrew, that the Hebrew word for discomfort is the same Hebrew word for wickedness. Okay? It's the same word that's used several times throughout the book of Jonah to describe who? The Ninevites, right? The word wickedness is used to describe the Ninevites. And here we're seeing that Jonah is 
He has discomfort, okay? He has wickedness. So he's not just uncomfortable, he's wicked, okay? So you see the parallel that God's setting up here. Jonah's like the Ninevites. But then it says God eases his discomfort. And again, the Hebrew word for ease, it's the same word as deliver, okay? So he delivers him from his wickedness. He eases his discomfort. Why is God doing this? What's this a picture of? Um, well, this picture, this plant is a picture of God delivering Jonah. It's a reminder. Jonah, you're so mad about what I just did to the wicked Ninevites. I delivered them, but this is what I've also done for you, okay? I don't just do this for Nineveh. You're wicked. You're in need of deliverance, and I've just done that. There's a picture of it even, okay? And so how's God in doing this, helping Jonah to, to change his story. Well, he's reminding him. He's reminding Jonah that Jonah is, he's just as much in need of salvation, of deliverance, as the Ninevites are. And you know when the gospel has actually really gripped your heart, when it's really come home, when you're able to look at the person in your life you despise the most, the person maybe you consider your enemy or the person you think is beyond hope? Like, who is that in your life? You have someone, certainly, that you look at with a little bit of revulsion. And you can look at that person and say, I need the gospel more than that person. I need God's grace just as much, if not more, than they do, right? That's when you know your story is starting to change, okay? So he shows him this plant. But then secondly, he shows him this worm, provides this worm in verses 7 through 8. We read that just one day after God provides the plant, after the plant appears, it says God provides a worm to chew the plant so that it withers. And then God provides a scorching east wind and the sun blazes down on Jonah's head. Uh, what's going on here? Well, it's important to just pause and notice that this is a phrase in the book of Jonah that occurs repeatedly. God provided. God provided a storm. God provided a fish. God provided a plant. God provided a worm. And what the story is getting at is that everything that happens in Jonah's life is the result of God, the hound of heaven, going after him with his mercy and love. Call it severe mercy but he will not relent. He will not stop pursuing Jonah and orchestrating all the events in creation and in Jonah's life to bring Jonah to the point where he embraces the gospel. Okay, that's what God's doing. And so God does this with the worm and the hot scorching east wind. And how does Jonah respond once the once the plant is gone, once the worm comes. Now that the plant is gone, now that his shade is gone, does he respond like Job? And he's just like, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. I didn't deserve the shade. I was glad to have it for a day. Does, is that how he responds? No. No, instead, in verse 8, he says this again, right? Not just verse 3, but now in verse 8, he says, it would be better for me to die than to live, okay? And so now, the next verse, verse 9, God asks Jonah, is it right 
for you to be angry about the plant? Why do you think God is asking Jonah that question? What's he getting at? He's saying, listen, careful what you wish for, right? You, you said that you, you wanted a world where there was justice. You do the crime, you do the time. Sinners get what they deserve. You said you'd rather die than not have a world like that. Well, guess what? You just got it. I'm giving you a world of justice where sinners, they get what they deserve, and that's why you don't have the plant anymore. That's why you don't have the shade anymore, Jonah, because you don't deserve it. You're a sinner. You're wicked. You, you now live in a world that has no mercy, right? And you can't have it both ways, Jonah. You can't have me exercise my judgment toward sinners, without including you. And you can't have me being a God of mercy, having mercy on the Ninevites, without also including you. Like, which is it going to be? And so you do, do you see here what God's doing, how he's reshaping Jonah's story? And then finally, um, God asks Jonah a question. I'll read it to you from verses 10 and 11. He says, you've been concerned, and this is how the book ends, about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Okay, so God's getting at a couple of things with this question. Okay, first, he's saying, you love and care for this leafy plant and it doesn't even belong to you. It's not yours. And yet I'm the creator God. I made everything that exists. The Ninevites, they belong to me. I created them. I made them. And I, I'm their creator God. How much more so should I be caring about them than you do your little plant, right? But again, he mentions that there are 120,000 people in the city, okay? 120,000, 120,000. Um, or one plant, right? And he's saying, you have one plant. There are 120,000 people who are made in my image. How much more should I care about them, right? And then he says, and they don't know their right from their left. What do you think he means by that? What does that mean? Well, if a lot of the commentaries, what they suggest is that God is talking about how the Ninevites were raised up in this bloodthirsty, savage culture. Think about you grow up as a little boy in Nineveh, and you're immediately trained uh, for battle. You're immediately trained to be barbaric. It's like growing up with, you know, within ISIS or something like that. And they're just trapped in this war machine, right? It's all they've ever known. And God is saying, shouldn't I care about that? Like, isn't that a cause for my concern. And so then at the end of the book, God ends with a question. Jonah, shouldn't I be concerned? Right? Jonah, implication, shouldn't you be concerned? And so one commentary writes this, commentator, I should say, it is as if God aimed an arrow of loving rebuke at Jonah's heart and set it a fly. 
And suddenly, Jonah vanishes, leaving us in its path. The question is coming right at you, because you are Jonah. I am Jonah. And so do that. Apply God's question to yourself. Ask, ask this question. Maybe ask, if, if God were to ask this question to me today, what would it look like? Okay, so you are so concerned about your fill-in-the-blank, right? What's your, what's your leafy plant? You're, you're so concerned about what your friends think of you, about having a boyfriend, not having a boyfriend, having a girlfriend, not having one, getting a spouse someday, playing in the mountains, whatever it is like we do here in Bozeman, right? Like what grabs our heart? What grabs your heart? So much so that it would make God say, is this a distraction to you from seeking first my kingdom? This good thing that I gave you. Plants are good things. Shades, that, that shade is a good thing. Boyfriends, girlfriends, playing in the mountains, it's all a good thing, but seek first the kingdom. Aren't you aware that 68% of the population in Bozeman is not affiliated with a church in any way? 68%. God's saying, that's my heart. That's what I care about. There are lost people, and you're so into your plant. Won't you join with me in loving these people and bringing the gospel to them? And so that arrow flies and it hits Jonah right in the heart. And he's sitting in your office, right? Maybe hunched over a little bit at this point, convicted. But you don't want to say counseling session's over right now. I mean, you want him to leave, having been in your presence and spent time with you, with some hope. And so how do you do that? Well, you want to be able to point Jonah to Jesus. You want to send him out of the office, having been pointed to Jesus, okay? Um, it was this past August. I had vacationed in July. I just got back in August, and it was early in the morning. I get this call on my cell phone, and it was from an old high school friend. His name is Jeff Johnson, and I haven't heard from Jeff in years, years. In fact, Back when I was a Montana Bible College student, Jeff went to college in Gonzaga, and he would come through Bozeman, and we'd sometimes have breakfast together. He'd spend the night, and Jeff was um, a total pagan, right? We, we both were in high school. I could tell you stories, right? And, but I was, going to, I was going to Bible College, and I was taking apologetics, and I was going to try out, you know, some of my arguments and... Uh, share the gospel with him, and he would just laugh at me. He thought I was an idiot, you know? And then we'd have lunch again, whatever, next time he was coming through, but he just thought I was an idiot, okay? So that's, that's background, 15, you know, that was like a long time ago. Um, so I get this call, and his voice sounds a little weak, and we chat for like five, 10 minutes, I'm outside walking. I'm like, how's it going with you, Jeff? Like I heard a long time ago, that you had some sort of cancer, but you got rid of that. How's it going? He says, well, actually, I'm in the Livingston Hospital right now, and I just had uh, a lung removed because, you know, he's had uh, a colon, colon, colon rectal cancer. He's had his colon removed, now his lungs removed, and he's like, it's just spreading all over inside of me, right? And he said, I just um, was thinking about you, and I just thought I wanted you back in my life again. So he lives in Big Timber, Montana. That's where I went to high school. 
So I said, tell you what, I'm going to come visit you. And I get Mondays off, and so I just started to go visit Jeff every single Monday. And with my first visit, I saw him, and he was so uh, skinny. And it was hard for him to stand and to talk, um, but he could still smile, and he'd kind of show me his house. And he took me down to the Yellowstone River where he had built this cabin, and he was really proud of it. And we sat there kind of just kind of looking at each other, talking, sitting in the cabin. And uh, I, on the way to Big Timber, I just prayed the whole way, Lord, help me to be able to share the gospel with Jeff, this man who used to laugh at me and mock me because of my arguments and I didn't know what I was doing was part of it. Um, and he actually said, Jeff, I'm, I'm very interested in Christianity now. And I've actually got this Bible app on, on uh, my phone and I read a verse every day. You know, the, today's verse says, be strong and courageous. And um, I read it in different versions and I'm starting to pray to God. And I kept visiting Jeff like Monday after Monday, and there was another church in Big Timber um, that I was connected with, and the, the pastoral staff there, and people from the church would visit Jeff. And through just all of that ministry, Jeff came to know the Lord, and I'm very thankful for that because he passed away just like two months ago. But here's what happened. I'd pray on the way there, Lord, help me to show Jeff Jesus. If we can talk about what it could look like to die and how he can do that with boldness, help me to do that. Help me in just my presence to be Christ to him. I want him to have a boldness when he faces death. And what would happen on the way back, though, is I would just kind of drive um, almost uh, stunned or in shock, just trying to process my time with him. Because when you're in the presence, I don't know if any of you have been in the presence of someone who's dying, but it's like sacred ground. Kind of like take off your shoes with Moses. You're, you're in the presence of something holy and sacred. And I always felt that way. And I always felt as I was driving away, wow, Lord, I went to show Jeff Christ, but in the midst of his suffering and the way he would talk about what was important and the way he was going through his suffering, I felt like he pointed me to Jesus. I felt like I had been in some mysterious way pointed to Jesus. And has that ever happened to you where you go, to, you go somewhere, maybe on a mission trip, or you're trying to help somebody, and you come away and you think, wow, I think they actually pointed me to Jesus more than I pointed them to Jesus, right? And, and this is so often what happens when people are hurting and suffering and in their hurting and suffering, they, you know, sometimes we have a tendency to turn inward one way or another, but they end up pointing us to Jesus. And this is exactly what's happening with Jonah. We see, if we're attentive, Jesus all over his story. When we're in the presence of Jonah, as he's sitting there in the counseling chair with all of his gripes and all of his suffering and all of his problems, he's pointing us to Jesus. You actually see Jesus in Jonah. Do you know what I mean? Look at it this way. The story of Jonah, what's it about? It's about a prophet who was called by God to go to the nations. And on his way, he goes to the bottom of the earth. He's eaten by a fish. He's swallowed by death. That's how Jonah describes it in his prayer in chapter 2. He's swallowed by death. He's in the grave. And then three, he is supernaturally raised up. 
okay, to new life. And then four, he <laughs> preaches the gospel to the nations, and they repent and turn to the Lord because of the gospel going out. So you have a prophet, you have a burial, you have a resurrection, and then you have the gospel going to the nations. And what you discover when you're looking at Jonah is that Jonah's, that's not just Jonah's story, that's Jesus' story. A prophet, a burial, a resurrection, the gospel going to the nations. And so no wonder that it, Jesus in Matthew 12, 41 says, now, now, one greater than Jonah is here. You see, Jesus lived the life that Jonah should have lived. He died the death that Jonah should have died, and he does the same for each of us. You know, think about this. Jonah was a religious man. Uh, he grew up in the church, you might say. Um, and yet, isn't it possible to be in the church and be at Montana Bible College and be a million miles away from God? I was when I was at Montana Bible College. Jonah was a hypocrite with a hardened heart full of pride and self-centeredness and self-righteousness. And yet, guess what? God had mercy on him. And God forgave this religious hypocrite of a man. And he'll forgive you as you go to him again and again and again. But in this story, too, there are the Ninevites. And they were barbaric. They were sadistic, violent pagans. If you started today and decided, I want to try to outsin the Ninevites, I don't think you could do it, right? They were that heinous. And yet, what happened to them? God forgave them. Do you think that there's something that you can do that's going to chase God off away from you? Do you think there's some sin that you're committing that is going to somehow keep God from pursuing you in his grace and forgiving you like he did the Ninevites? No. His grace is going to continue to hunt you down and pursue you and cover you with his love and forgive you. And so what's the invitation? Well, God is welcoming us all each day, maybe for the first time, maybe for the one millionth time, to come to the greater Jonah, Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we think of Jonah's story, uh, we, we see Jesus, and we're so thankful for that. We're thankful for how you, um, you pursue us in, in your love, that you are relentless with your grace in our lives. We think about how Jonah had to go through really hard, death-like circumstances in order to be brought to you, and, and we know that you do that in our lives as well. But we thank you um, for your life-changing love, and we pray that even today you'd work your grace in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.